Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, two things are clear. I've been given permission to preach till 2 o'clock. <laughs> and that coupled with my dad's exhortation last night not to cut my sermon short today, I'll uh, take that to mean I've got two and a half hours to preach. <laughs> We were in Romania, they would say, preach on. Five, six hours, doesn't matter. I don't know what it is about us, we can't handle it. There's a lot of truth here in the Word, and I'm probably not even going to finish this message to Pergamos this morning, because so much of this is tied to church history, and I know many of you have no uh, little understanding of church history and haven't had the privilege of taking church history classes and things like that, but there's some profound prophecy in these messages that actually plays out in church history, and I can't not address that. And so much of what has happened in the church's history ought to be a wake-up call to us today regarding the things that are going on around us. I dare say that people who knew church history a little bit better might not be so naive to believe all of this stuff that's the latest a hipster trend in churchianity and would not be surprised at what we see happening here in America because it's nothing new. It's happened time and time and time again. Just like in the Israel's period of the judges, what happened was a downward spiral time and time again. God's people would turn to idols and false worship and false gods and God would send in nations to uh, chastise them. Israel would wake up and pray for a Savior. God would send a judge and then they would worship God for a time and then go right back to another to, to idolatry, a level below where they had been before. So that actually happens with the church as well. But last time I was reading, we were studying the message to the church at Pergamos, which uh, is delivered in Revelation chapter 12, I mean chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. And I barely got through the 12th verse because I wanted to provide some background on why Pergamos was characterized as Satan's seat in this passage. And I, I talked about how there was a direct link between in, in Pergamos between Babylon and that spirit of paganism that started with Nimrod and manifested itself down through the ages and Rome, which would become the seat of the ecclesiastical church power with Constantine and that same spirit of paganism which once was known by other names would receive Christian terms and Satan's throne would move and, and migrate from, from uh, Babylon to, to Pergamos to Rome. So I wanted to provide some background there. This truly was a center of idolatry and a wicked place where there was a Christian testimony. In fact, today it's the modern city of Bergama in Turkey, and there even remains a nominal Christian testimony there today, which is an amazing fact considering the history of that place. Then we begin to talk about Jesus' description here in verse 12. Each, in each one of these messages, a certain aspect of Christ's character that is revealed in chapter 1 in John's vision is highlighted. And these highlighted aspects have specific... Um, uh, application to the church being addressed. What's being addressed here is a church that is tolerant of false teaching. Remember how we discussed the importance of pronouns and small little words in the Word of God and how every word is important? If you read through this message, you see a difference between thee and them. 
you and they. Christ is writing not to the false teachers. He's not writing to those that had corrupted the gospel in the church. He's writing to the believing remnant which had tolerated these things into the church. The remnant is whom Christ is writing to and He's writing as one or He's speaking as one who has the sharp sword with two edges. In Revelation 1 we saw this sharp sword is proceeding from the mouth of Christ. It's a reference to the Word of God, which in this sense has a twofold character. Why is it highlighted here for the remnant at Pergamos? Because the Word of God is, number one, a means of salvation to cut the chains of sin and condemnation that bind the helpless sinner. But it's also a means of condemnation to cut to pieces those that reject the Gospel. It's sharp enough to divide with precision genuine believers from false converts. And Christ was reminding the church, the remnant believers in the church that tolerated false Christians that I have the power and the ability and the precision to know true from evil. True faith from false faith. It's that paradox. You know, Christ is a rock, a cornerstone. You either fall upon Him and be humbled or He will fall upon you and grind you to powder. Christ's coming is a joyful, blessed hope for the believer or it's a terrible day of vengeance for the non-believer. On which side of the sword do we fall? That was the question I left you with last time. And so let's begin today. Not only is the Word of God a sword that divides between truth and error, that divides between genuine faith and false faith, it's also called a plumb line. Who knows what a plumb line is? If you've ever done any type of carpentry work, you know. A plumb line is something that people... I used to lay hardwood floors, and to start the floor, we had to start on a straight line. You couldn't start with a wall, because most walls and houses are crooked. Okay, if you started on the wall, you'd find that everything was crooked when you got to the end of the room. So we had to pull out a plumb line or a chalk line from one end of the wall to the other and make sure we had a straight line, and we'd flip it, and it would leave a a line on the floor and give us a visual picture of straightness. That's what a plumb line does. It helps you to determine a straight line, particularly in architecture. Somebody turn to uh, Amos in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. We have a description here of the Word of God serving the same function that it does as a sword, but here it's referred to as a plumb line. Revel I mean, Amos chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. I'll just read it real quick. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Israel under Jeroboam, the northern kingdom, had turned to idol worship. And they thought they were worshiping the God of heaven. Jeroboam's reasoning was, what? look, I don't want the people going down to Jerusalem. I'm the king over the northern ten tribes now. I don't want them going down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple uh, because then they'll want to go back uh, and you know they want to go to the southern kingdom and the kings will be reunited and God told me I was to be the king of this northern kingdom so we're going to raise up 
altars at Dan and Bethel and we'll keep the people in our own country and our own borders. And it seemed to make practical sense, but it introduced idolatry into the land and the people began to worship the golden calves. And those, began, those were supposed to be images of, of the God of Israel, but they were idols. And, and there was a drifting away from truth to such an extent that every subsequent king in Israel was uh, characterized as not departing from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, um, which also was reflected in one of his descendants, Jeroboam II, um, who is being referred to here. But here we have God in a vision standing upon a wall that had been made with a plumb line, but he had a plumb line in his hand, and the plumb line was his word. And what he was saying to Amos was, I'm going to set a plumb line, and I'm going to reveal that this wall, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, which you think is straight, made with your own plumb lines, not straight at all, it's crooked. And the plumb line that I'm going to show you that with is my word. God's Word exposes truth from error. It exposes crookedness. You know, we don't need to go very far to know whether the latest fad in churchianity or the latest popular preacher is preaching the truth. We've got a book here. We've got a plumb line. We've got a sword. All we need to do is unsheath it. We need to spread it across the floor, flick it, leave a chalk line, see if it lines up. We're too nice here in America. God forbid we say anything negative, you know. But we have a plumb line. We need to use it. It exposes crookedness. You know, there's people out here that seem very nice and friendly and spiritual. They'll say, I love Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. But the Bible was written by men and it only contains the Word of God. To such a person, I say, watch out. You build a house, a kingdom, a wall without a plumb line and the very word you reject will be your judge. And that's the image we get here in Revelation chapter 2. The word that is rejected is the revealer, the revelator of what is true. Watch out for false teachers. Those that twist the Scriptures. Paul referred to those that corrupt the Scriptures. Peter referred to those that wrest them out of their context to their own destruction. The yea, God hath said society. They know how to quote a little scripture, but just twist it enough to introduce false teaching. The yea, God hath said society goes back to the Garden of Eden. Eve said to Satan, you know, we're not allowed to eat this fruit or touch it. And Satan's responsible. Yea, God hath said. Yes, God has said not to do these things, but what He really meant is if you do them... You'll be like God and you're just not ready for that yet, he thinks. But I think you are. There's plenty of false teachers in the world that give an air of spirituality. And they can speak untruth so sweetly that we'll fall for it. That's why we need the plumb line. That plumb line. You can't, you can't love Jesus Christ, the author of the Word of God, and not love the Word that proceeds from His mouth. It's impossible. You claim to be a Christian and you reject the revelation of God in the Bible. You're just like the them in the church written to the, I mean, the letter written to the church of Pergamos. You're not of us, as John said. You went out from us because you're not of us. Watch out for false teachers. There's so many that abound. And just because something bad happens to a false teacher, 
doesn't mean that his teachings are all of a sudden off limits. I mean, bad things happen to those that reject God's word and preach a false gospel. That's the facts. In fact, Jesus warns of that very thing here to the church at Pergamos. Either you, the remnant, take care of the problem, or I'm going to come and fight against them. So we shouldn't be surprised when terrible things happen to false teachers. In fact, Paul said, let them be accursed. It's, in Peter, it talks about to them is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. If they won't repent... May their mouths be stopped. That doesn't mean we rejoice in calamity that befalls our enemies. Heaven forbid. Proverbs warns against that. But we cannot forget how dangerous the false teacher is. And it's the Word of God, the plumb line, the sword that prevents us from becoming tolerant if we'll but use it. The problem with the church at Pergamos is it had become tolerant. I love that image of, of, of the Bible or God's Word there in Amos. I, I just It's an obscure passage that's rarely ever preached from, but it's an amazing image. Let's go back to the message of the church at Pergamos. Verse 13, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And then I almost have to read the first part of verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them. So here in this passage, verse 13, we have a commendation that Paul gives, I mean that Jesus gives to the church. Not to the whole church body, but to the believing remnant. Thee. Thou. Thou hast. Thou hast not. And then we see a profound change in verse 14 when it begins to talk about the wickedness in the church. It's not thee, it's them. And Christ's problem, as we'll see, is that thou hast tolerated them. Christ is writing to the remnant. And He's commending them because they had been holding fast in their own lives. They were dwelling in a very wicked place, a seat of demonic influence, of demonic power. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, evil and wickedness in high places. The angel that was sent to comfort Daniel in his day was withheld by the prince of Persia, a wicked demonic spirit. The prince of Grecia was mentioned, demonic powers. Even in this place, the remnant had not denied Christ's name. They had held it fast. Divine judgment does take into account the forces of evil that are arrayed against the follower of Christ. For those found faithful in such circumstances, this commendation is all the more generous Oh, Christ had some correction to meet out. But He commended them. You're in a wicked place. You've held fast My name. In your own lives. You're in a place where Satan has his throne. Christ reminded them, I know where you dwell. I know where you're living. Christ knows the society and the times we're living in. He knows. 
We've got to hold fast His name. Not deny His faith. It says here, I know where you live. I know where you're at. Satan's seat. Wicked place. You hold fast My name and you have not denied My faith. See, the remnant was clinging to Christ in their lives and they had not denied My faith. Not their faith, but Christ's faith. What does this mean? Somebody turn to Galatians 2, verse 20. Here we have another instance of where a little preposition is so important. Galatians 2.20, what does Paul say? It's interesting when you read that, you know, and anybody that read that would have done the same thing. The way the English language is read, the very word I'm looking at got passed over real quickly. In fact, her volume dropped when it came to that word. And it's the syntax of English that would cause that to happen with anybody reading it. But it was almost like the most important word I was highlighting, the volume dropped. And I'm not saying that to criticize Jennifer's reading. I'm saying we all would have done that, but that's such an important word. Of the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not like the modern Bibles that change that to I live by faith in the Son of God. See, what happens is this what Paul is saying is I'm living by Christ's faith. And the modern Bible is changing, it becomes all about my faith. It's about me. It's Christ's faith that we live by. He is the faithful mediator. He is the faithful high priest that makes intercession for us. He was faithful unto death and became obedient as a servant. He is faithful to keep those that come to Him. He is the author, the Bible says, of our faith. So when we talk about faith in Christ, He's the author of it. Some people don't like to hear that. Because they want to think that salvation is something they do, that they choose to do. It's not. It's all a work of God. People get scared about terms like election, predestination. And yes, those terms have been twisted and, 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 claimed, and people have claimed them to mean something that the Bible doesn't define them as. But the Bible is clear that God has a plan and a purpose. And He has called out people to Himself. Read Ephesians 1, Romans 9-11. through You can't deny that. But it's by Christ's faith that we live. And the people, the remnant at Pergamos understood this. You see the difference in meaning between the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God and the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God? Do you see the profound difference there? What I see in Christ's commendation here to the church at Pergamos is that they had a proper understanding of God's role in salvation and their preservation. Christ said, you have not denied my faith. They understood that it was by His faith they lived. They understood and embraced a God-centered salvation. Not a man-centered salvation. But, the problem at Pergamos 
is that this understanding, this holding fast, was merely internal. It was, I like this word here, it was dissimulated. What does that mean? Anybody know? Dissimulated means concealed. Kept to yourself. So Christ is commending them, you've held fast my name, you've not denied my faith. They had a proper understanding of God's role in salvation and their trust was in the person and work of Christ. But it was dissimulated. It was internal. How do I know that? How can I make such a charge? Well, look at what they're rebuked for. They're rebuked for tolerating improper understandings of doctrine. And then look what it goes on to say in verse 13. You've held fast my name, you've not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. How do I know that the faith that Pergamus was commended for was dissimulated and kept to themselves and not openly proclaimed? I know that because Christ rebukes them for tolerating wickedness and keeping their mouth shut. But... This character here, Antipas, just the name itself tells a big story. It reveals a lot about the church at Pergamos. Who was this Antipas that Christ in this passage calls my faithful martyr? What a badge of honor to come from Jesus' mouth about one of His servants. My faithful martyr. The word martyr simply comes from the Greek word martyrius, which means witness. And it's associated with those who were witnesses for Christ and suffered with, and paid for it with their lives. Who knows who the first martyr in the Christian church was? Stephen. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. And Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church, was standing there watching it and applauding it. What a testimony to the power of God to change a man's heart. Who was this Antipas? He's not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. But there's tradition that comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church. You know, the state church that started with Constantine, uh, down through the years, the Western churches in Rome and the Eastern churches in, in the Byzantine Empire began to go different directions. And there was some conflict over the role of the Holy Spirit. There was conflict over the use of idols and images. And it was all a bunch of dead religion. But in the, in, eventually, in, in the year 1054, there was called, what was called the Great Schism, where the church split between the Western churches, the Roman Catholics, and the Eastern churches, which was the Eastern, Eastern Europe and, and uh, uh, Constantinople, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, they became the Eastern Orthodox churches. But in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it is said that Antipas... Uh, was the bishop or the pastor of Pergamos. I mean, we kind of get that imagery here anyway, who had been appointed by John himself. He was a pupil of John. And he was known as a very bold preacher, even a street preacher. He openly preached against idolatry in the city. In fact, the story says that once someone said to Antipas, Antipas, the whole world is against you in what you preach. And Antipas responded, then I am against the whole world. That says a lot. A bold man of God who had a proper understanding of truth and didn't keep it to himself, he preached it. Even when the whole world was against it. 
Tradition says that in A.D. 92, this was before the death of John, that he stood alone openly against the idolatry in the city of Pergamos. He was apprehended and a mob threw him alive into a life-size brass bull. Okay? This torture device was designed by the ancient Greeks for executing criminals. What it was was a brazen bull that was empty inside like an animal, a bull. And the criminal was put inside and then a fire was built underneath this brass bull. And this criminal would slowly roast to death inside of these bulls. And inside the head was this intricate system of pipes and uh, tubes that would translate the screams and the agony of the criminal into a sound coming out of the mouth that sounded like the bellowing of a bull. Crazy. I mean, some of the ways Christians have been tortured throughout history amazes me. I don't know who comes up with this stuff. But this was designed by the ancient Greeks, and in Pergamos it was also used as an altar to symbolically drive away the very demons that they were worshiping. So the tradition says that Antipas was thrown into this bowl and roasted alive. And that his screams and his cries sounded like a bull and the people just went nuts and fell down and worshipped. It became a big idolatrous ceremony. So how is it that one man, his, his name in Greek, just the name means against all, standing alone. How is it that one man, the pastor of a church, stood alone? He stood alone because the remnant in that church kept their mouth shut and they were too, too, too afraid to speak out. Dissimulated faith. We're not called to that, my friends. We're not called to that. And I, a lot of this is tradition. and We can't know, you know whether the specifics are true or not, but I find it an interesting story that's been preserved. Even the meaning of His name. Christ calls out one man who was my faithful martyr. Why is He doing that? Well, could it be for the same reason that Paul mentioned the Macedonian churches to the Corinthians? If you go and read it in 2 Corinthians, Paul's shaming the Corinthians for their lack of action by using the Macedonians as an example. And I think in a weird way, even though this is a commendation for the faith of the believers at Pergamos, Christ is using the example of Antipas to shame them for their... Oh, you've held fast my name. You've not denied my faith. You know, I commend you. But as we shall see, you've been tolerant. It's a dissimulated faith. We're not called to be dissimulated in what we know to be true. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor. Abhor. You think the word hate is bad. Abhor is like another level. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. That is a message given to the church. We've got a warped understanding of love today. Our love in churchianity is tolerance. The love that God's Word calls us to toward one another is unconditional. But in terms of the world and truth, it's without dissimulation and it involves hating evil and cleaving to good no matter what the cost is. And I dare say that very few who speak of love from their pulpits today have an understanding of what that is. They've never suffered for Christ. They know when to keep their mouth shut to befriend the world. God forbid we say anything to offend anyone. But apparently Antipas was an example 
of what even the remnant at Pergamos was not. Just an interesting story. It's kind of ironic with the people in Pergamos would use this bull to sacrifice as a means of driving away the very devils they were worshiping. What is it with you worship something and you don't want it coming anywhere near you. You worship it as God, but please don't come around. Stay away. That's world religion. That's man-made religion. That's Babylonian paganism. They don't worship God. They worship the devil. Devils, as Paul said. I found it ironic because, um, or interesting because in Nepal, it's a very similar situation. The patron deity in Nepal is Shiva, the Hindu god, the destroyer. And we know him as Satan. He fits the character profile of Satan in their cartoon fairy tale history. But the same people who worship Shiva there in Kathmandu don't want him coming anywhere around. And so they'll pay this priest at certain times to go through the neighborhoods and blow this horn to drive him away, to keep him away from our home. So they're worshiping something and adamant that the thing they worship not come around. That just makes no sense to me. But that's what was happening at Pergamos. As I said, in a way, Christ was using the example of Antipas perhaps to shame the remnant at Pergamos as Paul did the Corinthians with the example of the Macedonian believers. In Corinth, the, the, the Christians were affluent. They were well off. They had talked about how we want to take up an offering. We want to support the brethren outside our own walls. And Paul came to them in 2 Corinthians and reminded them, look, it's about time you start doing what you purposed to do a while back. Look at the churches in Macedonia. They were in deep poverty and they gave of their deep poverty to the brethren. And here you are just talking about it. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. The remnant had kept the faith. They had held fast Christ's name even in Antipas's day, but they did it in secret. Not openly like Antipas who stood along and paid for it with his life. Again, how do I draw this conclusion? Well, there's an indictment against the church in the next verse for toleration to false teaching. So they must have been quiet in the face of that. If they were quiet in the face of that, they had to be quiet in, the, in terms of their faith. You know, it's one thing to believe upon Christ and to hold His truth fast. That's important. Without it, you won't see the kingdom of God. But to keep that secret is a sin in and of itself from which we should repent. We're not called to a dissimulated faith. We're called to wisdom in how we speak and share our faith, but not dissimulation. There is actually an Old Testament example of one who stood alone when everyone else fled. And I've always found this little obscure corner of the Scriptures interesting. Somebody turned to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. 2 Samuel 23, 11 and 12. And be introduced to this very obscure biblical figure. A real hero, in my opinion. Somebody read that. 2 Samuel 23, 11 and 12. And after him was Shema, the son of Ag, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. 
Interesting little tidbit. Why is it put there in the scriptures? You had this Shema, the Hararite, which was one of David's mighty men. The Philistines were attacking Israel, and where was he standing? On a piece of ground full of lentils. Just a piece of ground. It wasn't the wall of Jerusalem. It wasn't the the, the house of the king on Mount Zion. It wasn't the, the temple, or the, I mean the tabernacle, or the Ark of the Covenant. It was a piece of ground full of lentils. But that ground had been given to God to the descendants of Abraham. And even though it was a seemingly insignificant patch of land whereupon lentils grew, it was significant to this man. And what did Israel do? They fled. But Shama stood alone in the piece of that seemingly insignificant ground knowing it had been given to Israel as a promise to Abraham and fought alone. And what did God do? He wrought a great victory. That's just an amazing story. So many times we think, well, this issue is really not that important, you know. Bible versions are really not that important. Or, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know modesty of, uh, amongst Christian women, it's really not that important. It's just going to cause a problem. Let's just deal with something else. And then all of a sudden, we turn away from those seemingly insignificant issues, and then you've got a church full of false teaching. You've got a church in America where the divorce rate is 50% or greater. You've got churches in America where men can't go in the walls of a church and worship on Sunday morning without flesh in their face because young women have never been discipled to dress modestly. What Shema the Hararite stood and thoughtful wasn't insignificant ground because God gave him a great victory. What Antipas stood alone and fought for wasn't insignificant ground. Will we be those that stand on seemingly insignificant ground in terms of churchianity of the world, but significant because of what God says in His Word? Will we stand and fight alone? That's the question. Are we willing to be like Antipas? Antipas, the whole world's against you. Well, I'm against the whole world. Are we willing to be like that? It'll be like that for the remnant as the days grow closer to Christ's return. It'll be such that even if it were possible, which it's not, the very elect will be deceived. Are we going to stand alone? Or are we going to be dissimulated in our faith like Pergamos? The sin of tolerance. Verse 14. You've held my faith. You've not denied my name. I commend you. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Here we have an indictment. A commendation followed by an indictment against the remnant for the sin of toleration. The battle cry of the church today is tolerance, tolerance. We're actually debating in our churchianity today whether or not the Bible says it's okay for homosexuals to get married. There's actually a debate in the church over that. A debate. There's actually a debate over whether homosexuality is a sin or not. There's actually a debate over whether or not the sin of Sodom was homosexual behavior or a lack of hospitality. We're actually debating those things. Can you believe that? Tolerance 
is the battle cry of the church and of the world. But tolerance, according to God, is a sin. It's a sin to tolerate untruth and wickedness. It's a sin. And here, Christ indicts the church for tolerating those that had the the doctrine of Balaam and those that practiced the very thing that Ephesus rejected, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Sin of toleration. This is very important to understand. The sin of toleration. It germinates. It's like a seed. It germinates in the soil of what I call dissimulated love. When our love is dissimulated, you know, our love for the truth and our love for the world such that we share the truth of Christ with them, when it's dissimulated, then that sin germinates. It takes root. Romans 12.9 Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. You see, in my opinion, the world's love... I don't need to write all this down. In my opinion, the world's love is actually hate, according to the Word of God. And the world's hate is actually biblical love. It's backwards. Isaiah talks about in Israel how um, in his day, good was evil and evil was good. Well, it's like that today. The world's love is actually hate according to the Word of God. And the world's definition of hate is actually love, if you think about it. Somebody turn to Proverbs 26, 24. Proverbs 26, 24. This is the Bible's definition of real hate. And notice the word it's connected to. Somebody read that. He that hateth dissembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. He that hateth dissembleth. That's the verb form of of this. Dissimulation. You keep something to yourself that you know to be true and beneficial if you hate. If you love, you speak it. My opinion, the Christian berays his lack of love for the lost when he doesn't openly share the gospel. You know, Christianity would say, well, you need to love your neighbor. Don't say anything that would offend them. Well, according to Proverbs, that's hate. That's deceptive. He that hates dissembles with his lips. Paul the Apostle said, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Sin of toleration germinates in the soil of dissimulated love. God doesn't call us to be quiet about truth. That's hate according to Proverbs. Love according to the world. God calls us to speak the truth. To speak it in an attitude of love, but nevertheless to speak it. And the world says that's a hate crime. It's coming to America. If you say homosexuality is a sin, even in response to a question, that's going to be a hate crime. But we don't care what the world says is hate. In the world, everything's backwards. We've got to be careful of that dissimulated love. How does, if the seed of toleration is is, uh, germinated in the soil of dissimulated love, how is it planted? It's planted by fear. That seed is planted by fear. 
that seed of toleration, it's planted by fear, and it's germinated in the soil of dissimulated love. It's fear that causes people to keep quiet. Churchianity in America is so fearful of everything. Everybody's so afraid. Oh my goodness. You know, what a terrible thing. Rick Warren's son committed suicide. I can't say anything negative about false doctrine now. Oh, oh God forbid. If, if you write anything about his theology on my Facebook page, you're going to be immediately banned. I saw that several times yesterday. What, what does that have to do with the lies that have been spoken by that man? I mean, I, what a terrible thing. I don't wish that upon anyone. But while all, this, while all of a sudden is the theology off limits, that's the problem. That's the problem. It's fear. Oh goodness, I don't want to be seen as someone in the world's eyes as, as, as being this or that. Well, the world's always going to accuse us of being things, whether we are or not. The sin of toleration is also germinated in the soil. There's two types of soil that germinate this sin. Dissimulated love and a lack of discernment. Some people are tolerant because they're fearful and their love is dissimulated. Others are because they have no discernment. They have no discernment. Somebody read Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Paul is writing to Hebrew, to, 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 to Jewish Believers who were wavering, dull of hearing, wavering between holding fast Christ's name and falling back upon the Old Testament law. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use to have who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Okay. Those that are stuck on the milk of the Word, the, the simple plain things of the Word, are unskillful. But the strong meat of the Word, the hard truth, belongs to those that are full age, who by reason of use, in other words, who by reason of studying the Word of God, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Dissimulated love is planted by fear. A lack of discernment is planted by failure to study God's truth. Paul the Apostle said, Study to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that not, needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We can't rightly understand God's hard truth unless we study. We can't even discern good from evil unless we're studying the Word of God. It says here that by reason of use or study, people have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, a lot of us train physically. We exercise physically so that we can be healthy or meet certain goals. Or if I'm going to climb a mountain or ride a bicycle across America, I've got to train for it. We never think about needing to train spiritually to be able to discern good from evil. If we can't discern good from evil, we become tolerant of evil. We can't discern good from evil because we don't use the Word of God. We don't study it. 
We don't put it in front of our face every day in every situation like God exhorted the children of Israel to do. This word that I've spoken to you, this law, bind it to your forehead. Teach it to your children. Don't forget it. These are two of the biggest problems with the church today. Dissimulated love and a lack of discernment. Where does it come from? It comes from fear. And we don't even live in a country where real persecution in terms of loss of property and freedom and lives is really an issue right now. And yet we're so bound by fear. And there's just such a lack of study. It's unbelievable. We've got all these study materials. All these resources. A Bible that says what you want to say in any language possible. Multitudes of Bible translations into English. And yet, we have an ignorance of the Bible in our society that's absolutely appalling. Even if the motivation of the modern, of, of the committees that put together these modern Bible translations... Even if their motivation was pure, we want to make the Word of God easier to understand so more people will believe it and receive it. Even if that motive was pure, I don't think it is. Money's behind a lot of that stuff. God always preserved His Word. He's done it down through the centuries. Man's tried to corrupt it. A lot of what we see in these modern English Bible versions is an example of that. Oh yeah, they contain the Word of God and they can lead a man to salvation, but why use a butter knife in battle if I can use a double-edged broadsword? I praise God for my King James Bible here, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I know it's going to go on the internet. I don't care. Why well, go into battle with a butter knife when I can use a double edged broadsword? Blackback, 66 caliber. <laughs> Tolerance. Tolerance is a sin when it comes to God's truth. It's a sin. We need to repent, it leads to false teaching. Only by using God's Word and proclaiming it without fear can we avoid this sin of Pergamus' remnant. It's like if you're involved in some sort of an accident during normal activity. Maybe you're in a car wreck. Or maybe you're a mountain climber and you fall off a mountain. Or maybe you're preaching, you're accustomed to preaching, and you're attacked by a mob. What sets in? Fear. You don't want to do that anymore. What do you have to do to overcome that fear? You have to get right back up. If you're trying, kids, if you're trying to learn to ride a bicycle, and mommy and daddy take the training wheels off, first time you get on that bike, what's probably going to happen? You're probably going to fall. You may skin your knee. It's going to hurt. You're not going to want to get back on that bicycle again. But you've got to get back up and try again. And if you don't, the fear will overtake you. It's the same thing with the truth, the Word of God. When we encounter opposition, we've got to get right back up like Antipas, using God's Word, proclaiming it. When we were in Nepal last year, many of you know the story of us being attacked by an angry mob in Ratna Park. And Ricky and I were beaten. We escaped with our lives, praise God. I was fearful to go back out and preach again, thinking that this could happen again, again, again. The very next day, everything that was in me screamed, stay home. But I knew it was very important that very next day that we go right back out. Not necessarily to the same place, but we had to get right back out there and preach the same message again because if I didn't do it, the fear would overtake me and I'd find excuses, excuses, excuses to stay home. The next day we went, not to right in the park, 
we went to Bodhnath Stupa, which is the second holiest site in all of Tibetan Buddhism. We walked inside and preached. And the Lord gave us a large crowd. There were no problems. And many monks heard the Word of God and many took tracks that day. But it was necessary not so much to preach at that place, but it was necessary for us to overcome our fear. And we have to do that when it comes to the Gospel and sin in the church. We've got to overcome our fear. We've got to study so we can discern good and evil. And then we have to proclaim these things and not be ashamed even if it makes people upset. There are things we can do in terms of our body language, our spirit, our presentation that can communicate love. But love isn't hiding what we know to be true. Only by using God's Word and proclaiming it without fear can we avoid the sin of tolerance. Here it says, I have a few things against thee. Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, and thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Them, the false teachers, the false church. They were who they were in truth. It's no surprise that false teachers, unregenerate people, would teach untruth and follow the doctrine of Balaam or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's no surprise. But why would the church be tolerating these things? That's the question. Now I want to get into what exactly is this doctrine of Balaam? What exactly, again, is this doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Because we have that even today in the church. And from these things, we need to run. We need to repent. And then I want to get into the history of how this actually played out from the days of Constantine the Roman Empire emperor who officially made relig- who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire from his days all the way down to the beginning of the 7th century where the bishop of Rome was officially proclaimed the head of the church it's a problem and then what you have thereafter is just full-blown paganism in the church reflected in the message to the church at Thyatira but before i end in Knowing we're going to talk about church history, I need to, need to define that for a minute because this thing gets confused in church history classes. When I talk about church history, what am I talking about? There are two approaches to church history. The most common is what I call the general approach. And then there is the particular approach. We just need to get this understanding right now and I won't, I'll finish up this message next week. The general approach to church history views the history of the church as being that of all denominations, whether they're true or false. You know, the history of the church is Roman Catholic history, Protestant history, usually involves the history of, uh, the, ch- uh, of the apostolic church up to Constantine, uh, and then it talks about the Roman Catholic church up until the Reformation, and then the history of the Protestant and Catholic churches, blah, 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 up till today. And basically every denomination, every group of Christians is seen as being either Catholic or Protestant. It treats the church as anyone who claims to be a church or a history of Christendom in general. Then there's the particular way. 
The particular approach to church history would consider church history as a history of churches that actually conform to the New Testament pattern or the New Testament definition of a church. And if you look at general church history, you discover a lot about the history of the true church. Details of the history of the true church are found predominantly not in decrees and creeds and councils, but in the records of courts and indictments of their Catholic and Protestant adversaries, thus presenting their views often distorted and biased. Throughout history, real churches were hated, hunted, and persecuted, and most often called heretics because they would not confirm to the decrees of popes, councils, synods, or rulers. Their stand for the Word of God resulted in their death, so much so that this is often a history left in a trail of blood. And it's hard to find. But Jesus Christ promised that He would build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And based, on, against him, based upon that promise, God has always had a remnant, a believing remnant that did not that did not conform to these bastardizations of New Testament truth that we see in Roman Catholicism and even in a lot of Protestant churches today. He's always had a faithful witness. And if you want to find out who they were, they weren't called Baptist. They were Baptistic in their faith. That means they believed the Bible was the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, not tradition. They believed that baptism was an outward symbol of an inward change. It was for believers, not for infants, not for people on their deathbed that wanted to make sure their sins were washed away so they got wet. Baptistic Bible-believing Christians, the remnant, believed that the church only had two offices, deacon and bishop, also called elder and pastor in the New Testament. There weren't cardinals and popes and all this nonsense. That's Nicolaitanism. Bible-believing churches saw only two ordinances revealed in the New Testament, that of... Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And neither one of these imparted any sense of ritualistic power. They were commemorations of an inward truth, of a profound truth. Bible-believing Christians believed that God was sovereign in salvation and that there was no place for a state church, that the church wasn't to be about politics. It was to be about preaching the Gospel and God would save those who believed. Therefore, they, they, they stood for freedom of conscience. The ability to give, or, or giving man freedom to choose what's right and wrong, he'd be responsible for his own actions. And we see a record of this down through history, and they're often called different names. You know, you can go down through Catholic history, if you want to know where the true church is, most of what is called heretics in the average Christian textbook, or church history textbook, is probably a record of the true church. In the first century, they were called Montanists. Second century, they were called no. I mean, uh, in the second century, they were called Montanists. In third century, Novatians. Fourth century, they were called Donatists. In the East, they were called Paulicans. All of these groups were called Anabaptists. Guess what they were called in, in, in Europe before people started fleeing to America? They were called Baptists. Not in terms of endearment. So you have two types of history. You've got general church history. I'm really not concerned about this, I'm concerned about this. This is who Christ was writing to at Pergamos. And it's interesting to see how despite all of these efforts to stamp out God's witness, 
Just like His Word He promised to preserve, there's always been a witness, a faithful witness. And those faithful witnesses need to be called upon to repent from time to time as Christ is doing here uh, with the church at Pergamos. Now I'm going to stop here today. I, you got, I mean, you guys asked me to teach the book of Revelation. I'm not going to just skim through things. I like to get in depth. There's some elements of church history I want to talk about. So we could be stuck on Pergamos for a couple more Sundays. That's alright with you. It's okay with me. Um, uh, but uh, we'll just go as the Lord, Lord leads. So, sin of toleration, we need to be very careful. We want to be those who leave this kind of testimony. Not this. Not this. This is the Babylonian paganism that ends up engulfing the church. But God has the victory. And praise God for the faithful, believing remnant. May we be a part of that. Okay? Alright. I'm going to close. And then I believe instructions were already given about what's going to happen before we eat. So uh, I'll just close in prayer and we'll bless the food later. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this Word. And we pray that we would take it and apply it, know how to apply it, Lord. Lord, may we, may you, Lord, we repent for being tolerant of wickedness. Lord, give us that proper balance between holding fast to truth and doing it with meekness and with love. And may that never involve concealing or dissimulating uh, warnings that might draw men to repentance. Um, Father, we, we take these truths, these hard truths humbly, Lord. We ask You to plant them in the soil of our heart, Lord, to germinate them, cause them to grow and, and, and give us wisdom on how to, to enact them, Lord. Um, there's just so much here. And uh, help us to use it skillfully and to make application and in doing so to be faithful witnesses, Lord, even in these troublesome times, Lord, these days that grow darker, by the hour. Lord, we lift up the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world, those that are struggling in, in churches that have forsaken the faith. Lord, those that are remnant bodies in and of themselves that are persecuted. Lord, those maybe that feel like they stand alone, just like Antipas, your faithful martyr, did. Lord, strengthen them. Let them know that we are here. Not in, maybe not in presence, but in one spirit. May we pray for, for those as we would covet their prayers should we find ourselves standing alone. Lord, may we be like Antipas, even though the whole world's against us. May we reply then we're against the whole world. Not for our sake, but for the truth of Christ, laying hold upon that blessed hope that He will return again and fulfill everything He's promised us. Pray for those that are not amongst us and the request we lifted up to You earlier today. Have mercy upon us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.